Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, turn with me to the New Testament letter of 1 John. Near the back of your Bibles, we'll begin this morning a study in uh, the little epistle, five chapters long, of 1 John. The author of 1 John is the same as the author of the Gospel of John, and the same simplicity that you are perhaps accustomed to in the Gospel of John, you'll observe in the letter of 1 John as well. John communicates truth with great depth in remarkably practical and insightful ways. John puts things, as they say, on the bottom shelf. And yet at the same time, there are waters here deep enough that um, the the, the highest, uh, most uh, well-skilled and trained of theologians can drown here if he commits adequate time. I look forward to the study that we'll have over the next several weeks here in the letter of 1 John, and I hope that you will be refreshed even as I've been in preparation for this series. If you have your Bibles and you've turned there to 1 John chapter 1, I want to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse number 4. Here the Bible says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. What we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard we also declare to you. So that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. You may be seated. Just a couple of months ago, we looked at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4 through 4 in the context of our brief Christmas series titled, The Doctrine of Christmas. We talked here about the doctrine of Christ, Christology, from chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. As we learn a great deal, John reinforces a great deal about who Jesus was, the nature of his person. And we celebrated the biblical truth that Jesus was entirely divine, 100% God, that he was entirely man, 100% man. And he was so in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled by him, that his substitutionary death might be sufficient to atone for the sins of those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All of those truths are affirmed within these first four verses. But there is, again, much, much more. Go back to verse number one. I want us to pick slowly through these few verses. John says... What was from the beginning? He begins the letter of 1 John in the same way he began the Gospel of John. And he begins the Gospel of John in the same way the Bible begins in Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In John chapter 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, There was in the beginning the Word with God, and the Word was God. The Word, in verse 13 of John chapter 1, clothed himself in flesh and came and dwelt in our midst. 
in John 1.1, he seems to be um, evoking the language of Genesis 1.1 in a way to go back in time even beyond the creation event. That is, before the creation, there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In eternity past, John says in John 1.1, there was Jesus, coexistent with Father and Son. In eternity past, there was God. And now at this remarkable moment in history, what John celebrates in John 1 is the breaking through in history where God clothes himself in flesh and comes down. The interesting thing about what John does in John chapter 1 is that he waits, waits until verse 13 and perhaps in some ways even later to reveal to us that the person that he is referencing is Jesus. He's, he's building anticipation in, in, in the hearts of his listener, in his, in his reader. And he does the same here in 1 John 1. He says, in the beginning, what we have heard. Are you, are you wondering now what we've heard? Are you contemplating the beginning? This is the guess what game that our kids like to play. Guess what, Dad? Guess what, Mom? Just guess. Just guess. In the beginning... What we have heard, what we, what we heard with our ears, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed or scrutinized, what we have closely examined, what we have touched with our hands. And then he gives us the first hint concerning the word of life. But he doesn't completely show his hand. He continues in verse 2, that life was revealed. The word of life, that life was, was revealed and we saw it again with our eyes and we testify and declare to you the eternal life. This was not just life, but eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You get all the way to verse 3 before the main verb in these four verses is introduced. John says, this is what we've seen and what we've heard, and we declare it to you. John says in the context of great doctrinal conflict, in a day and age when there's tremendous confusion about who Jesus is, the nature of the gospel, John says, I'm not just bringing to you conjecture about Jesus. I'm sharing with you about one I have seen with my eyes and I have touched with my hands, the one who was from the beginning broke into history and broke bread with me. And I proclaim him to you this morning. I've seen him with my eyes and touched him with my hands. He is the eternal life that broke into history. He is our message to you. I want to share with you five truths from this text that I think are the five most important truths John shares in this text, but there are a number of good theological principles to be gleaned from our text. I want you to note first that Jesus is the gospel. There are a couple of places in 1 John where John makes his intentions in writing very clear. 
One of those is in verse 4 where he says we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete or that your joy may be complete. The other is in 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 13 where the Bible says, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John is clear about his ambition in writing this letter. But what is presupposed in both of those statements is that our ability to know that we have eternal life and our capacity to experience the fullness of joy hangs on the person and the work of Jesus. The central message of 1 John is Jesus. In fact, the central message of John's ministry in total is Jesus. And the central message of the church is Jesus. And the central message of the Christian faith is Jesus. John says, the one I saw, the one I heard, the one I scrutinized, the one I observed, the one I looked upon, the one I spent time with, the one I broke bread with, he is the word of life, eternal life that was with the Father but broke into history, that he might live without sin, that he might die in our stead, that he might rise again the third day, that all who believe in him might have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. The gospel just means good news for those of you who may be making your entry into Christendom. Jesus is the good news. Of course, this is set against the bad news. The bad news being that we are all dreadfully sinful people. But unlike the way that reality is treated in modern culture, that's not an excuse for our sinfulness. In spite of the fact that everyone is doing sin, we are all condemned for our sin. In the world, if you sort of get a run on sin, if you have a law that's violated by everyone, rather than coming up with ways of penalizing everyone for their sin, we just change the law. It does not work that way in the Constitution of God. The fact that we are all equally sinful people does not mean that we're all going to somehow get out on a technicality before the judgment bar of God. Rather, it means that God is able to exact justice against every sinner known to man. Every sinful person is deserving of the judgment of God, and certainly it is within the power of God to exact justice against us. But there is good news. For God, in his incredible grace and mercy, looked upon us with such affection that he saw fit to send his only begotten son into the world, that Jesus would live without spot or stain, that he would never sin, not one single sin, in all of his three decades of existence. And he would die not for crimes that that he had done, but for the misdeeds that we have done, that he would shed his blood, that our sin might be atoned for, that the wrath of God against us would be satisfied. This is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And everything that we're about is Jesus. He is our sufficiency. He is at the center of our life, not interested in being one among our priorities, but first and foremost, the preeminent one in our life. Jesus is the gospel. Secondly, 
John is clear that Jesus is eternal life. He begins this parenthesis in verse number two, noting that life was revealed and we have seen it. And we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. The notion of eternal life invites thoughts of the immortal, supernatural, thoughts of something or someone who is not of this world. When John speaks of Jesus as eternal life, it's a thinly veiled reference to the fact that, again, this is not the beginning of Jesus' existence. That this is the breaking into human history by God. That he would, as John puts it in the Gospel of John in chapter number 1, be clothed with flesh and the likeness of sinful flesh. He came and dwelt in our midst, humbling himself, condescending in incredible ways. Ways that confound our mind, even to the point of death. That in his humiliation, the Father would exalt him by virtue of his death and resurrection. That one day, that one day, that one day, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, the name above every other name. Jesus is eternal life. If you want to have eternal life, you must have Jesus. Usually when we speak of eternal life, we're speaking quantitatively, meaning we're speaking in terms of length of life. I can distinctly remember a very low time in my teenage years when I considered late one evening the idea of living forever. And I can honestly say to you that on that evening, the idea of living, of existing forever was not something that appealed to me or would draw me to the gospel. Rather, it was an idea that repelled me. The idea of existing forever. The thought being, if this is the way things are going to be, if this is the way things indeed are, the idea of living this way in this state under these conditions forever, not only does it not appeal to me, but it sounds downright distasteful, disgusting, something that I have zero interest in. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, hear me carefully, that when the Bible speaks of eternal life, not only does the Bible speak quantitatively in terms of the length of our existence, it also speaks qualitatively concerning the quality of the existence that we enjoy. What Jesus has offered us in himself is not just a life without end, but abundant life filled with the joy and the gladness and the peace and the satisfaction and the happiness that can only be found in him. If you don't have abundant life in Jesus, what good is eternal life in the first place? Jesus is all that we need. He is the life. When he says of himself in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, he ain't joshing. And what he says there is incredible, a very simple and straightforward statement. But again, the depths of which we could find ourselves swimming in forever. Jesus is our life. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is eternal life. I want to show you a third thing here that I believe to be almost as precious. In Jesus, we find community. 
In Jesus, we find community. John says in verse 3, What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you, so that you may have fellowship along with us. So that we might be joined together. So that we might enjoy community together as a body in Christ. I, I preach these things to you, John says. I proclaim these things to you in order that our fellowship might stand. So that in coming together, we might stick together. In this day and age, perhaps more so than in any other period in recent history, there is a real longing for a sense of community. Now, you can't provide that apart from Jesus, but I'm telling you that there's real appeal with regards to the Christian faith and what we enjoy as a fellowship in the community that we share together. Here John says, I want you to make sure that you get this right. Because getting the gospel right is essential to enjoying community and fellowship together as a church. John would later observe in 1 John that there are some who've left us. There's some who've gone out. And concerning those who had departed, John said they were among us, but they went out from us because they were never of us in the beginning. The fellowship that we enjoy as a church... The fellowship that we enjoy as a body, it does not hang upon our cultural similarities. It is not dependent on the reality that in many cases we're from the same general geographic area. It's not our about, about our having similar likes, interests, or hobbies. The unity, the togetherness, the community, the fellowship that we enjoy as a church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes everything else seem small and petty and insignificant. When Jesus is first and Jesus is foremost in our life, as we are drawing near to him, we are at the same time drawing nearer one to another. John says, I'm writing to you, get the gospel right, because the gospel is what holds you together as a fellowship. Just this week, I had a conversation with a precious gentleman from our church, church, I'll keep this ambiguous enough that you'll not be able to identify him, but he, he shared with me of, of how Sunday and Wednesday are the days of the week when he and his bride really look forward to spending time with you all, with us, as a fellowship. Do, do, have you lost that? Do, do you remember what that used to be like if you have? When Brandy and I got married, her dream as the pastor's wife was to, to, for me to pastor a church that had a, a pastorium or a parsonage. They don't do that anymore, but in our rural setting, they did. And, uh, and the reason was so she could leave me there and go home without me because she was tired of waiting on me at church. <laughs> Just get, you get together with people. And I, and I, I remember, especially, it's especially early on and still very much, I, I live in preacher world now, insulated from so many of the struggles that you guys are faced with on a constant basis. But when working in the world and bombarded with all of those influences and facing all of those temptations and challenges, I can remember looking to Sunday and Wednesday evening as a time when I could rest and relax and enjoy the fellowship of God's people. And I wanted to be the first person there and I wanted to be the last one to leave. You know, I, I'm not suggesting, I want you to be careful that you hear me here. We don't only enjoy the fellowship of the church on the Lord's Day and on Wednesday night. Yeah. 
But there is something precious about coming together under the banner of the gospel with God's people in those settings. We ought to enjoy that fellowship even more often. But don't you ever forget that the community that we enjoy, the fellowship that we experience, is not about our similar likes and interests. It's not about the color of our skin. It's not about our ethnic background. It's not about pulling for the same teams. It's not about coming from the same part of the country. It is about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that prevailed over our sin and has made us one in spite of our diversity in Jesus Christ. In Jesus in Jesus, we have community. Number four, in Jesus, we have fellowship with the Father. Continue on in verse three, John said again, what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, you can find fellowship in a number of places, but you can't find fellowship with the Father except through Jesus Christ. The only way to God, the only way to be brought near to God, the only way to have the sense or feeling of closeness to God in any legitimate or valid way is through the blood of Jesus Christ. The only way you get to God is through Jesus. That's the only way you can get there. And, and the reason we can take heart that, that our assessment of Jesus as the only begotten of God, the only means of access to the Father, is superior than every other idea floating around out there in the world. The reason we can have confidence that this premise is right is because Jesus is alive. He's the only one who ever rose from the grave on our behalf. There have been many who've laid down their life for a variety of religious causes, but only one, only Jesus, rolled back the stone, breathed life into a once dead body, and walked out in great victory. Jesus lives, and because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we may have fellowship with the Father. Jesus is the lone way to the Father. Can't do enough good works can't attend enough services, you can't be baptized enough times, you can't a attend enough small group meetings, you can't pay penance often enough, you can't make enough confessions, you can't give enough sacrifices. It's only through Jesus that we may have fellowship with the God of heaven and earth. Number five, in Jesus our joy is complete. Yes, it is. There's some difference of opinion in verse 4 with regards to how it should be translated. Verse 4 says, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There may be a few translations out there that say, so that your joy may be complete. And the reality is there's a great deal of disagreement even among the best of scholars. The outcome, what this verse produces for us, the truth of this text is unchanged by this minor disagreement. The result is the same. Jesus is our joy. Jesus is your joy. John says Jesus is my joy. 
And in order for my joy to be complete, what's necessary for your joy to be complete, coming to the realization that Jesus is our joy, must be grasped. You must wrestle with this truth. It must be hidden away in your heart. Jesus must be your joy. In other words, John says, I just cannot be satisfied with regards to the condition of this church until I know without question that Jesus is the joy of your heart. I want you to know that Jesus is where it's at, brothers and sisters. That Jesus is the end all and the be all, the alpha and the omega, the resurrection and the life. That in him is found eternal life. That Jesus is the good news. That I saw him and I heard him and I touched him. I want you to know that Jesus can be to you what he is to me, John says. I write these things to you in order that our joy, in order that your joy might be made complete. That Jesus brings us satisfaction and joy and gladness, happiness and, and peace. It's interesting that uh, how we think about joy sometimes. I've always been a little perplexed at how we talk. We talk in terms of, of joy. Preachers especially like to say things like, well, now joy is not the same as happiness. And I just want to say to you, brothers and sisters, if you've got joy, you'll be happy. Regardless of what the circumstances are, if you've got joy, you'll, you'll be happy. I'm not suggesting to you that everything's going to be smooth sailing for all of your life, but I am promising you that in the midst of that, when, when Jesus is our all, our, our joy does not ebb and flow with the ups and downs of life because there is an unchanging God in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning who is at the center of our heart in the person of Jesus Christ. Are you resting in Jesus? Now, think about this for just a moment. Who is John writing to in 1 John? Now, we don't know the church specifically that John is writing to, but what we do know without question is that he's writing to Christian folk. He's writing to other brothers. And he says to them, I write these things in order that your joy might be made complete. There's another way of translating verse 4. We might say we're writing these things to you so that your joy might, might remain complete. But the idea here is that there are Christian brothers and sisters whose joy has been compromised and John wishes to restore their gladness of heart. It is possible as a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you allow yourself to be influenced by the doctrines of this world, by the temptations and the snares and the snags of life in the here and now, that your joy be broken. A joy once full in Jesus be compromised by the circumstances of life. Now I would say to those of you who do not have a relationship with Jesus, who are not born again, that your efforts at joy will always come up empty. And I do genuinely believe with all of my heart that if there were any way to find satisfaction or fulfillment in this world apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ in about a six or seven year window of time of chasing after everything this world had to offer, I'm convinced I would have found it in that window of time. And I want you to know that what I have found in Jesus cannot be replicated by anything that this world has to offer. But I also know that there are many of you who have legitimately placed faith in Jesus. You, you have been born again. You are followers of Christ. 
And, and yet you live in this constant state of sort of puritanical misery. And what Jesus has offered us in himself is the fullness of joy. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on 1 John, he suggests that chapter 5 and verse 19 of 1 John offers us the theme of the epistle of 1 John. Look there for just a moment. In chapter 5 and verse 19, the Bible says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And he says, on the basis of that verse, the theme of 1 John is, is how a Christian is to position himself or herself in this world. In other words, John is writing in a day and an age when it feels as though, it seems as though things are worse than they've ever been before. There's theological insanity. There are a variety of ways that the gospel is being compromised. There are endless volumes that have been written as to what the theological challenges John was facing in 1 John might have been. And I believe the reason there are many ideas about what John was up against is because there were many opponents to the gospel, many philosophical opponents to the truth of the gospel in John's day. They were living in a culture that was utterly depraved. When I, when I, I hear Christians milly-mouthing about how it's a difficult thing in our day and age to pay honor to the leadership that God has given us, and I read the New Testament, think about the fact that many of these brothers were lorded over by a Caesar named Nero. I laugh. It is comical that we would struggle in our day and age with the freedoms that, that we enjoy. We, we, we are prisoners of the moment. And this has always been the case. This is not just true of us. It's always been the case. In every generation, we convince ourselves and we feel as though things are worse than they've ever been before. How can we survive? Because we love a good disaster, right? Everyone loves to see a, an accident. Everyone, we're, we're drawn to those kinds of things. John is living under the same circumstances. And he's writing to Christian brothers and sisters who are looking around themselves at their environment, at the current climate, politically, militarily, financially, economically, personally. In every way, they're looking around themselves and they're saying, woe is us. John says, be careful that you don't forget that we are of God. Yes, we affirm that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one, but we have been marked off. We have been set apart for this. We have been separated by the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are of God. If there's any body of people who are to enjoy the fullness of joy and peace, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, it ought to be the body of Christ. Should we really be shocked as we spiral the drain? We know that the world is under the sway of the evil one. But we are not dismayed, cast down, or defeated. Brothers and sisters, the victory is ours through the blood of Jesus. I, I, I'm preaching to me here, right? So we look around, and you can get very frustrated and very discouraged. This, this is why the doctrine of God's sovereignty in my life is such a comfort to me. That he knows the hairs of my head. That not one detail of my life, not a millisecond of my experience has escaped his attention. And he is orchestrating those milliseconds 
for my good and for the glory of his name. Brothers and sisters, when I settle my mind there, it doesn't matter what the 24-hour news cycle says. My joy is complete in Jesus. John says, I have written these things to you in order that your joy, that our joy collectively might be made complete. Now, I want you to know, I want you to know that when the New Testament speaks of joy, when we speak of joy in a New Testament sense, it's not something that we can produce in and of ourselves. It's always produced by something else. In the case of New Testament, biblical joy, it's produced by the power of the gospel in our hearts. In in other words, you don't have the strength to muster joy in your own power and ability. But when you receive the promise of the gospel for the forgiveness of your sin and the hope of eternal life, The reception of that gift is such a profound and moving experience that it shapes the course of our life from that moment forward. So that all that is required of us in order to know the fullness of joy is to bring every thought captive to obedience to Jesus. To take from our minds the things of this world and to settle our concentration on the goodness of God in Christ Jesus. To hear the call of the Savior, come unto me all who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest for my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Jesus says, come and rest in me. This is where we find our joy because of the gospel. Now, in every congregation I have ever preached to and I presume will ever preach to, there are people who just flat want to be happy. Brother Wade, I just want to be happy. And I'm not sure as gospel preachers, we've always done a great job at at directing them. We say things like, well, God is more concerned with your holiness than he is with your happiness. And there is a modicum of truth there. But you will never be happy apart from being holy through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those two are not at odds with one another. There is a joy and a gladness to be found in Jesus when we turn away from the things of this world and render ourselves, our lives, in service to the King. So lost person this morning, person without a relationship with Jesus, person wondering, looking for answers to your deepest and most difficult questions, person who's looking for a brand new beginning, person who just wants to start over, person who's really made a mess of your life and wishes you had a way to move forward, person who wishes they knew what the next day would hold, the answers are to be found in Christ and in Christ alone. Look to Jesus who bled and died for your sin and rose again the third day and that even in this moment beckons by the Spirit that you would come to him in faith for grace and for mercy. Christian brothers and sisters struggling to find joy, struggling to find joy for a variety of reasons, struggling to find joy because your house sounds like World War III when no one's listening. Struggling to find joy because your financial world is on its head. Maybe it's bad decisions. Maybe it's things that have happened to you. But struggling to find joy nonetheless. Struggling to find joy because you've wandered far away. We are 
prone to wonder and prone to stray. You need only come back to Jesus to draw near to him. Come to Jesus. The call of the gospel is not just for the unbeliever. It is for the believer. For every day that we would turn away from our sin and believe the truth of the gospel that our joy might be made complete in Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe the message of John? That Jesus is God's son who broke into history? That he saw him? That he heard him? That he touched him? That he looked him over intently? And found him to be the gospel? Eternal life in whom our joy is made complete. Do you believe that message? Then be still. And know that he is God.